the canon that we will discuss today only has one in the Lord. So the writer of Hebrews, this is what the writer of Hebrews says about the word of God. He says that it is, whoops. He says, I'll get it. Get it for you. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But if he knew about canons, I suspect that he might have said something like this. The word of God is long and sturdy, more powerful than a cannonball piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, obliterating the strongholds of Satan, and impacting the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the word of God will blow your mind. That is so true. And I do not want to be accused of adding or taking from the scripture because we're talking about the canon. That's one of the points. It's a closed canon. You can't add or change. So I'm not trying to add. I'm just saying that this metaphor of a canon even though it's not correct, too many ends. It is a great way. Imagine if your church had a cannon that set out in the front just to show everyone we are ready for the offensive. We're ready for the attack. And instead of shooting cannonballs, we have the word of God and it is awesome. It is God's revelation to us. It is the way that we know how God revealed himself to man, how he came to the point of redeeming and showing salvation and how to get salvation. And more importantly, the plans that God has for each of our lives individually and collectively as a church, which you are. And so we're very excited. So I just want to say just real quick that this is a very explosive subject. (laughs) Learning about the canon will ignite your passion for God, his word, and his people. And we should all take aim to focus in on God's word and know everything we possibly can about it. One of the great ways to do that is to come to church and to be around someone like Mark Lanier, who has so much information, just a little bit that he gets out, blesses our hearts and blesses me. I love sitting under Mark and being able to grow and learn. But hear this, it's the Holy Spirit that reveals God's word to us. We can sit in here and get a lot of facts and information and do some check marks for God saying, look, God, what I did today. But it's the Holy Spirit that will apply what you've learned and growing in and reveal to you and blow your mind and let you move on and be a powerful force for him. And that's why we're going to talk about the scripture. Now, a little bit about the veneration of scripture. That means respect. Um, God's holy word. How is it respected in the world? If you look back in the synagogue service, they would parade the Torah in on scrolls. Uh, let's see if I have one. Here we go. And of course, this is not a scroll, but they uh, do have scrolls and they'll bring it in in an ark. The, the five books of the Old Testament, which for them is the Testament, right? They don't have an Old Testament for the Jews. It is the Testament. Or if you do the OT, it means only Testament, not Old Testament just so we can clear up. As they bring that in, they parade it in and they read, they put the scrolls out and they read from the scrolls. The uh, Catholic church, they say special prayers before 
and after the reading of God's Word. The Anglican Church has some interesting things, and I've asked Jeff to come back because in England, uh, he and uh, Melvin are a part of the Anglican Church, and I asked him to share a little bit about how they venerate or honor Scripture. Hey, so um, I was brought up in a, a Anglo-Catholic church, so that's high high Anglican, so towards the Catholic end. So I was a server boy when I was a child, which means that uh, we, when we had the gospel read, we used to have two acolytes, so two candles either side, and then a big crucifix, and we'd parade it into the center, and we'd read it. Now, at one level, that was really good, but that's nothing like what we do in Mr. Tinker's church right now. Because what we because uh, we treat the Bible in everything we do, in that sense we don't venerate it in one special occasion because it's threaded throughout everything we do. So we'll just uh, open up the Bible when it's being read, and then at the end um, the, the reader will often say, "This is the word of the Lord," and everybody will say, "Thanks be to God." And that's kind of our veneration at the level we're at now. Very good, thank you. So let me just say that I think this is the best way that we can honor scripture is to study and show yourself approved. And the exact opposite of that, opposite of that is to just leave it on the shelf. I'm here to tell you today, your Bible is not some neat decoration for your bookshelf, for your bedside table, or for your family room. It should be worn out because of the amount of study that we dive into. And if you're only pulling it out once a week, it's like only maybe only taking your medicine for some disease that you should take daily, but you only take it once a week. Maybe it's too expensive. Maybe you don't have the time. Maybe um, you don't like taking pills. But if that's the thing that helps you, you're going to find a way to make it work or you will perish and die unfulfilled. And that's not what we're about here in uh, the biblical literacy class. It's our desire to be biblical. So let's look at why we should even study the canon. How many of you accept by faith that that's the word of God? Sure. So why is it a big deal to, to study? And, and no, we need to look at why. First of all, John in chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and, and logos, this is the Greek word that he puts there. And it, the word means word. So it's kind of a little play on words that in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Logos means Word, which equals God, which equals Jesus, meaning Jesus is the same as God, although not the same as every word, but God's Word, which is what we're studying today. Another thing, we have a closed canon. You cannot at this point add or change anything to the canon. In fact, in Deuteronomy 4.2, back in the Old Covenant, it says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you. If you're not careful, you can easily add commandments and things to do along with God's word. Oh, wait, who did that in the New Testament? Who? Who kept adding more and more laws, more and more things to do that we found out in the New Testament, but it was in the Old Testament? The Pharisees and the scribes, the priests, they were so careful that someone would break the law. They added man's laws in order to keep from it. And what did Jesus do? He came back and peeled that back. He said, we need to focus just on 
my word, not on the extra things. It's not that we can't talk about and learn more about God by hearing what other people have to say. That's not the end of the world. But you should always base it on God's word. And it's exactly what the Bereans did. If you look at Acts 17, Paul went and he ministered to them and he taught the gospel. What did the Bereans do? They went home and he says they studied the scriptures. What scriptures did they have? The Old Testament. That was all they had. They didn't even have a New Testament. It was, it was being lived before it had been written. And they went home and they studied the scriptures to be sure that what he was saying was lining up. Because when Paul taught from the scriptures, he was reading the Hebrew scriptures, which is what we call the Old Testament. Another example, oops, Revelation twenty two nineteen. we have, if anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues of written in this book. And if anyone takes away from them, God will take away his share in the tree of life. So it's a pretty serious curse for those who add or take away the way that we believe in the canon of Scripture. These verses, one from Deuteronomy, run from Revelation, they're taken in context of that book that's been written. But we now understand it to be for the whole canon. Uh, and that's good. That's got some advantages. We'll talk about that in a second. If there is an important event in your life that you know is coming up, like say a wedding, what are you going to do in order to mark the day? What? Say it again. You're going to write it on the calendar. Absolutely. You're going to mark the day. What else will you do to mark or remember the day? You're going to hire a photographer and you will pay that photographer big bucks, won't you? And you'll hire a videographer probably. You're going to pay him smaller bucks, but probably still big bucks. And why do you do that? Because we want to mark significant events. We want to remember them and do everything that we can. If, if it was so important, we might even tell a friend. We might like to invite friends over and say, hey, the other day I got my driver's license. What marks a driver's license? You get a driver's license. Yeah, it's a whole little state printed thing with your picture. And when you, when you first get one, like when you turn 16 and you get it, what are you doing? Look at this. None of us do that later because we don't like the picture. But when you're 16, that's exciting and you want to mark the event. Unless the policeman wants to see it. So God, exactly the same thing. The most significant event in history, God wants to record it. And more than that, to preserve it. For everyone to know. If we were just enjoying the oral history of the stories of the Old Testament, how God revealed himself through those narratives, and the gospel of Jesus as he lived this perfect life, taught these wonderful and life-changing things, and then died on a cross, was risen again, buried, I'm sorry, buried, then rose, then ascended, and in between there even taught the disciples more when they were up in the upper room about the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus kept teaching them. They had already learned, you'd think everything they needed. And after he died and rose again, he said, hey, let's go back in. And he spent a long time talking more about the word of God. If we only had stories that we just kept telling and telling to this day, we never bothered to write it down or preserve it. What would happen? It, it would, a lot would get lost. A lot would get changed. And you would have no source to go back to make sure that you knew what was going on. But God says that the flowers fade, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And you know, when our, who's in the 930 service today? Anyone? When uh, Brent Dyer read the scripture, what did he read it from? Well, his phone. 
Did that bother anyone? Some? That's okay, but it's important to note. The canon of Scripture is not the paper and the ink that it's written with. It's not the computer file that downloads it to your phone. It is the Word of God. And God considered it canon, a standard, at the time that He spoke it, and it was first written by whomever wrote each of these books and preserved them as the scribes continued to copy and recopy and recopy. And eventually it came to press time. What was the first book ever printed on the first printing press ever? The Bible, the Gutenberg Press. I saw it in Mainz, Germany when I was there back in 03. Uh, it's still there. But the very first book printed was the Bible. Do you know that the Bible is still the number one bestseller of all books of all time? And it will continue to be so. In fact, everything else will pass away. God's word will continue. What God is saying is I spent a lot of time and effort to preserve my word for you so that you can know the truth. The very least that you can do is dive in and study it. And as we read last week when Mark was teaching to study and show yourself approved. Another great thing about God's word is unity over diversity. The Bible was written over 15 centuries. That's a long time. That's 1,500 years. And in that 1,500 years, it was written by about 40 different authors inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, to collect, and to keep over three continents, over three languages, and all of it continues to ratify itself when it continues to talk about the one true God who gave His Son to die for our sins, even in the old covenant that was prophesying for the new, and in the new covenant, seeing that prophecy being lived out and, and realized, uh, all the way up to a special look into the future. That is unity out of diversity. If we had a car accident and 40 of you saw the car accident and had you all in separate rooms writing out a, re a report of what happened, we would get some different stories. God very carefully kept the content of what he needed to be revealed to you uh, in such a way that we can still read it today. This is in contrast to other holy writings. You know, there are, there are other holy books, right? And some of those canons are still open. In fact, the Book of Mormon is a canon that was inspired by Joseph Smith up in Manchester, New York in like 1830-something. Uh, he, near his land, was led by, he says, the angel Moroni, which you can see him... Uh, 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 a statue of him up on the top of the Mormon church just down the road that brought him to a secret uh, cabinet. And inside there was a golden book on golden pages was written this new revelation. And he wanted to take it then, but the angel in, uh, in, inspired him to come back a year later. And after several years of persuading the angel, he was finally able to get the book that was written in some kind of hieroglyphics that he wasn't able to understand. So the story goes. Fortunately, he had a seer stone that he used for other treasure hunts that enabled him to peer through, as it said, and to translate into the Book of Mormon. And then the angel told him to destroy it you know, so there wouldn't be any evidence. We can come back and look for it later. And as a result, here we have the Book of Mormon as this, well, I would say a faux canon. Uh, well, it's still a canon, but it's not holy writings. And the Book of Mormon or the Mormon religion has an open canon that God can still reveal himself to the priest. Uh, Catholics are similar in this respect. They, um, the Pope can still receive 
new revelation from God, doesn't it do your heart well to know that we serve a God that's got one book made up of many books that are not going to change and you don't have to wait or hope that something changes next week that's going to mess you up. You already know what the standard is. And that's one of the great things about having a, a holy writing that is a closed canon. So let's talk about the canon. What is canon? Where do we get the word? It's a Semitic word. We go to the Elmo just for a second. Back then, they only had consonants. They really didn't have vowels. But if you put a couple of, of vowels in, you have ten. Whoops. Tanakh, which um, Semitic is very guttural language, so is Hebrew, um, which it meant a reed or a cane or a rod, and they would use that to um, measure things. And then so later on, the Greek kanon would be a measuring rod or, or a ruler, and pretty soon it eventually became known as a list. But before that, each of the increments on the ruler, on the, on their rod, each increment became known as the canon. That was the canon, each part that would use to measure. And so don't think of it as the canon that measures whether or not the book gets into the book of books, but it is the canon of faith that each book measures our lives by increments to see how well we are growing and being uh, grown up in the things of the Lord. Uh, we call that sanctification. And that happens after salvation, but you don't have to measure up to get saved. Amen. Amen. Salvation happens. And after that is when the yardstick comes out and you're able to reach those increments. And so if every year you look back on your life, basing it on God's word, if you are not growing, know more about the word and acting on the word, that's okay. It's just saying, hey, red flag. You need to reevaluate. Maybe stop doing some things that you've been and reevaluate and start doing some things that you need to because you're not growing. If you didn't have a standard, you cannot judge and track your growth. Now, does Champion Forest Baptist Church track and chart your growth? <laughs> That'd be hard to do, wouldn't it? Are you more spiritual or, or, or not? We, we can't do that. We look at metrics like how often you come, how much money is given in general, different things and baptisms that we have, how well is the church doing. But your growth in God's word is between you and God, and that is really difficult to quantify. But what did Jesus say? You will know my disciples by their fruit. That's why I'm glad that at the end of every lesson, that's when Mark has his fruit for home. Because it's fruit, and as David Fleming, our pastor, says, we should be fruit inspectors, not judging each other, but we should be encouraging one another to love and to good deeds, to growing up in all things of the Lord. And if you're doing that, you're going to be excited. You're going to want to share. You're going to want to teach what you've learned and continue to grow in those things. That's why you're able to do that is because we have a standard that everyone can measure up. Not that we're trying to measure each other up, God, Jesus says, look at the log in your own eye before you look at the speck in your brother's eye. And Christians have gone too far trying to judge everybody else outside the church. Now, there's a lot of bad things going on out there, but I think, you know what God says? In a sinful and fallen world, and this is reading the Bible, there's going to be sinful and fallen things that happen. I don't like it, but the only person that can make a change is you with you. If you want to stop abortion and murder, if you want to stop 
all these crazy, horrible things that go on in the world that we can watch the news and see. It starts with you. What are you doing? How are you growing up? And who are you discipling to bring with you and share the good news of Jesus Christ? Because the only way to change the world is by each person, one person at a time. So in God's word, in the canon, we have two testaments. Again, the Jews only have one testament. That's the only testament. But for us, we have the new and the old. Mark uh, talked about how Dr. Bob said, well, why is the New Testament still new? It's The only reason is because we compare it to the old. In the old covenant, how did God reveal himself? First to Noah. Remember that? And he, he made a covenant with Noah after the flood. And as a sign of the covenant, what did he show? The rainbow. Then he made a covenant with Abraham and called him out and began to develop a people, a nation that had not existed up until that point. He pulled him out of the land of Ur and began, and we only know this because of God's word that we're able to read and to study. And as he did that, he established another covenant than with Moses. And with Moses, the, the Bible says that he pulled out the book of the covenant, which Moses had written earlier, the laws and commands that were given to him on Mount Sinai. And he read the book of the covenant, and this was still the old covenant. And he said, and the people said, we believe and we will obey. And as they did, God would bless them. And the covenant was, if they didn't, then God would curse them. He would not help them. And they saw that lived out time and time again. But the covenant was what was established to them in the old covenant. And then the new covenant is when Jesus came and instead of an animal blood ratifying the covenant, it was Jesus's blood that ratified a covenant. And Mark was talking about this a little bit last week. We see the Latin term instrumentum and testamentum, an idea of the last will and testament. But what happens for the last will and testament to be engaged, somebody has to die. But this word really takes on more meaning when we understand it as a covenant, uh, the old and the new covenant. I have a timeline here of the scripture when the scripture was written. So I don't think you can even read those little words underneath. Those are the books of the Bible that were written. This is the order that it was written in. We have uh, Genesis and then Job and then Genesis and then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as we were tracking along. Uh, through the wilderness. And then we have Joshua who took over from Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. We see that narrative. And then we go to Judges as the judges began to rule over Israel. The book of Judges would be in that time. The book of Ruth, 1 Samuel 1 through 7. Um, moving on from there to uh, Israel's monarchy when they got a king. Um, we have uh, Psalms and Proverbs. Ecclesiastes were written during this period. Uh, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Moving on, we have 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings 1 through 11. And then we're still in the period of the kings. And in the period of the kings, what happened? That's easier to read. In the period of the kings, we had the kings who did right in the sight of the Lord. And then more times than not, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it wasn't until it was Ezra that went rumaged through the old dilapidated temple, temple, uh, synagogue found the book of the covenant. What did he do? He opened it up and he read God's word and the people were pierced to the heart that they had let it lie in ruin and they bowed down. And what did they say? We will obey. Once again, 
We will obey. And they did for a while. And then they stopped. And then they started again and moved on. So moving on from the kings, um, we got all of the minor prophets. We have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, getting to the Babylonian exile. Daniel was in the exile. Those were written then. Uh, when I say those, the book of Daniel. Ezra, Nehemiah as the post-exilic after they were able to come back. Uh, Nehemiah and Esther. And then Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. And we get to the end. Of course, it hasn't come. That's the revelation of God. So with the Hebrew scriptures, what order were they in? We're talking about the canon, how all these books came together. These books, excluding other books, including these books, and being able to understand why and and even the order. Now, when you had scrolls, there was not a real reason to have an order because they were always moved around and they would go in and they would have them in categories. Now, the Torah was always kept together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was the law. They called it the Torah. It's just Hebrew for Torah. And they would parade those in. That was the most special. And they would venerate those scriptures more than the others. But then they also had the Nibaim, which were the prophets. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And in the prophets, they had the minor and and uh, former and, uh, let's see, latter... Major and minor prophets is what we call them. The major and the minor prophets. And they would kind of keep those collected, but there was not a real order necessarily. And then finally, the writings or the Kitchabim would be just the writings of like uh, Job, Song of Solomon, not Job, Job's history, Song of Solomon, Psalms, uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, what is it? Proverbs, thank you. Um, those were kind of kept in a category. And so... The Hebrew scripture, if you take a look here, we have the uh, Torah, then we have the Nibaim, the first letter, and then the uh, the Ketbuim. You know, it almost sounds like Naboo and Tatooine from Star Wars. Did y'all notice that? It has that kind of that sound? Because a lot of these linguists who did the movies, they would take old Semitic languages and they would kind of weave them in because they had to develop a language for, for their movie. And even Star Trek, you know, Mr. Spock or uh, he, Captain Spock, he was Jewish by reality uh, in the movie, uh, he, or the TV series too. He was a, uh, what was Mr. Spock? Vulcan, thank you. But, you know, the Klingon language, uh, very interesting. It had very a guttural kind of Semitic Hebrew language. And the only word I really know is kapla which means success and farewell. So uh, that was free. <laughs> Don't tell me when I said that. And so um, when they, in the Hebrew, again, only the consonants, you put some vowels in, Tanakh would be how they would rev- uh, talk about their Hebrew scriptures. Um, so that moves on. As we uh, look on these scrolls, the, we talked about the veneration earlier, how they would parade them in. And reading a scroll was not at all easy. Uh, it was big and bulky. You'd have a big table. And as you unrolled one side, you were rolling the other side. Sometimes you would have helpers, uh, although they were very careful who would touch God's word and uh, very careful how they stored them. Uh, these are just some of these examples. Uh, here's an, maybe an example of an ark that uh, one of the Torah might have been kept in because they wanted to preserve these as best they could. This was uh, God's word for them. And as they uh, preserved and, and read these, the idea of a book would be much better. 
Because in a book, you could carry, well, a lot in several different books. They wouldn't have put them all together. Our Bible, of course, is a book of books. Have you ever tried to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? Does it read like a novel? (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) The Bible, uh, I mean, I want to say on one hand, it's a very complicated book. The Holy Spirit can reveal it to us. And so don't be, don't shy away from it. But it's not a novel that you read from beginning to end. I was an associate pastor at a church over in Kingwood for a few years. And one of the things that we did was that we had every, the church was about 200 or so, 200, 300. We would read through the Bible in a year. So I was like, well, hey, let's read through the New Testament. So everyone kind of got on board and we were reading. I wasn't the pastor, just be clear. I was an associate. But uh, we would read through this year in the, the New Testament. So a lady came to me after about a month into the reading and she was like, hey, I've read through Matthew. Now, get this. Jesus, after he ascended to heaven, became a baby again and started living his life again. And she was freaked out about it. And I was like, oh, hey, yeah, someone, we should have explained that. Why do we assume that everyone has the same basis of God's word? That these are four different accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, of the same thing happening. Different perspectives, different accounts. And she's like, oh, that makes a lot. Because she was just thinking, a miracle, baby Jesus again. (laughs) He's so cute. Let's do it again. No, that's not God's plan. That when you read God's word, there's a way to do it. And the best way was last year when we read the Context Bible. What an awesome opportunity to see God's word put together in an order that tracks through and can be understood and further explain to other people. When you know this stuff, you take it for granted. Or maybe you're just coming on it and you're like, good, I'm catching up to everyone else. We should be telling everyone about God's word. And even the things that we assume they don't know. And, you know, if you don't grow up in the nursery, what happens? You miss out on those, what we call Bible stories. They're not just stories. They're the narratives of God's revelation to man, how he began that process. Again, at the church, someone came out of a Sunday school class and they said, uh, he kept talking about Jonah. And he assumed everyone in the class knew about Jonah. I have no idea what's going on with Jonah. Then was not raised in the church, didn't know about those formative stories. So if your kids are not in church, get them in church because they need to know that formative foundation. As they grow older to the age of accountability, they'll be able to make an informed decision about Jesus Christ because the Bible says, count the cost. You have to know, you should know what you're getting yourself into before you sign on the dotted line. The only way to know that is to get in God's Word, to study it and read it and know it. You don't have to know everything about God's Word, but you need to know the important things. And there are people that can direct you and show you, but don't just take their word for it. Be a Berean. Go home and read the Scriptures, and the Holy Spirit will reveal to you, and you'll be amazed, and you'll be better equipped to be able to do your mission in this life. That's what the canon is all about. Moving on to the Septuagint. Mark mentioned this last week. It's abbreviated by these Roman numerals, LXX, which together is a Roman numeral four. It's about this this legend that 72 scribes, Jewish scribes in Alexandria came together. And because the Jews were spreading out and away from Judah, Hebrew area, their, their language was not spoken in these new places. Greek was coming along. Latin and Greek were being developed at the same time, in fact. And they, they, wanted to be able to communicate with everybody else. So they began speaking Greek. And then they're like, 
wow, we need to get our scriptures translated into Greek. So a group of them came together and they, they did this. And we're not sure if that's exactly how the legend ended up or if that was true. But the fact is they um, translated the Hebrew into Koine Greek, which is a very common Greek. There were different levels of Greek. This was very common for the common man. Again, God developing his preservation of his word to be available to the masses because that's the word of life and that's what they need to know in order to move on and to have hope and victory in this life and moving on from this life. So this is one way that God preserved his word. And you know, Greek is a very specific language. There are specific words that identify more uh, specifically than our very ambiguous human uh, English language, right? (laughs) The human language, right? The English language that we uh, can say one thing and it can mean five different things. And that would be rough to have just the first revelation in English. So I'm glad God in his wisdom, and I'm not questioning him, he could do it in English and be good at it. But he did it in Greek where we could see like, for example, love. Uh, Agape love is very different than the other kinds of love like filio, which would be a brotherly love. Um, More of an erotic love uh, was more specific. And so you could read the Greek, and really get at, understand where they were going. And this was a problem for the Jews because here they had translated from Hebrew to Greek and the Christian church, as as Jesus came onto the scene, Christians, they began loving the fact that they have the old covenant scriptures preserved for them in Greek now. They can go back and read, and they, they didn't think, oh, that's the old covenant. It's no, I don't need that anymore. I just need to follow Jesus, because what did Jesus do? Jesus was constantly referring back to the old covenant. And what did he say? He said, I have not come here to abolish the law, the Torah, but instead I've come to fulfill it. In other words, we learned in seminary to, to say it, we fill it full. It was the completion of what had already begun and ended up ratified in this new covenant. And so these new Christians, uh, even before Jesus had, had died, they were loving having this Greek. And Jesus, Jesus and the other apostolic writers, the apostles of God, they referred back to all of the books of the Old Testament, with the exception of two, and which is why we include those in our canon. Again, there was never a time that a group got together and said, we need to figure out what books we're going to call sacred and what books we're going to call normal or pagan or, or, or just good. But we need to find out. They never did that. They were always tracking along and being very careful to keep God's word, holy scriptures, the, the sacred writings, as they would call it, separate from everything else. So later on, we can look back and make sure that, okay, this word has been referred to by God. Uh, Jesus talked about it. Uh, The Apostle Paul referred back to it. And any of those, then we would just confirm the decision already made. All of the synods and conferences that went on, they never put together uh, a special list. They would look at, looking back, they would bring up the list and say, hey, as we all know, this is the list. um, And we just want to make sure everyone's on the same page, literally. And so uh, this is what the Septuagint did. They had some difficulty because I was talking about the translation that, and I think Mark even might have talked about last week, where there was a word for virgin in the Hebrew. It 
it could mean virgin, but it could also mean just young maiden. In the Septuagint, those Hebrew scholars translate it to a very specific Greek word that meant virgin. Now, that is a pillar of our faith. That is a really big deal. And so getting that clarification, but the the Hebrew uh, priests and scribes, they went back and changed a lot of the Septuagint to reflect other words that were more in common with what they understood and not as it relates to Jesus. While the new Christians, well, the Christians, they were new, uh, they were trying to understand God's word as it revealed Jesus Christ. Having seen Jesus live his life, teach what he taught, die on the cross, ascend, and promise of coming back, then getting the Holy Spirit in Acts, they would understand the Hebrew scriptures in a whole different way. And that's why Mark talked last week about interpretation. In Alexandria, in order to understand the Old Testament in this new way, they kind of went overboard and made everything allegorical and spiritualized everything so that they would have a, a better way of understanding it. God doesn't need us to do that. God's word is very specific and we can be encouraged as we see the revelation, we hear the prophecies, and as those prophecies are revealed, even as specific as uh, from Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel 28, it talks about the prophecy of the city of Tyre. Some of you might have heard this, but it's, it's such a great example of a prophecy written hundreds of years before and then on the other side, looking back how that it was fulfilled. The prophecy stated basically that the city of Tyre would be destroyed. Its city would be scraped into the ocean. It would never be rebuilt. And the uh, fishermen's nets would be laying out to dry on, on any given day. It's kind of a, kind of a curse, kind of a, uh, gotcha. So Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked Tyre, but he did not destroy it. So what did everybody say? Well, the Bible had some of it right. We'll kind of look at it more for its theological than its historical significance. And then years later, Alexander the Great came. And once the city of Tyre attacked by Nebuchadnezzar, they went out to a causeway that was out separate from the city. It was across the, the ocean. And they built their city there with very high walls, thinking that it would be more safe for the next attacker. Alexander the Great, what does he do? He comes in, attacks whatever's left on the city, on the mainland, and he scrapes the city into the, into the ocean, building a causeway to the island of Tyre and wipes it out. And to this day, Tyre has never been rebuilt. And I suspect if you take a, a Mediterranean cruise, you may go by and see some fishermen's nets laying on the rocks, drying, because that's what God's word says happened in that particular situation. That's just one small example the prophecies of Jesus Christ are even better. And that's a great homework assignment. Go home and, and look at the prophecies of Jesus and how they are revealed. When you just read the prophecy, you're kind of thinking, what does that mean? But when you look at what happens with Jesus, it becomes more and more clear. And that's what they had the beautiful opportunity to do as hindsight to look back at what's happening. So the Bible proves itself. It's, it's showing itself to be true. And of all these years on the bestseller list of critics that do, I read a lot of articles of people online and other places that talked about all the problems with scripture and uh, all of these things that then someone else comes and says, well, you can, you can understand it this way and, and that way. But in the end, no one has ever proven it false to the point that if there was something that was definitive, that was wrong, that was misleading, that was untrue, Paul said we would all be fools doing what we do. We might as well move on to do something else. So if that's true for you today, 
move on. Because I trust in the pillar of God's word to be our standard in everything that it says. And until that day that I'm just proven a fool, and I don't mind being a fool, but until that day, I'm going to live out everything that the Holy Spirit reveals to me in order to show myself approved, not to keep my salvation. I'm not balancing whether I get to stay or I have to leave the kingdom of God. What I want to do is honor God with everything that I have. And if in the end, what if God says, Brent, uh, your name's not in the book of life. How horrible. What a horrible thing for me. But I, I think we have to ask the question, do we serve God because of what we get out of it? Or do we serve God because he's the creator God who demands what he demands? And as a covenant bearer, I will obey his command. I don't believe I'm going to hear those words. I never knew you. But I need to be sure that my service of the things of God, my study of his word and my actions thereupon do not reflect, God, you did this for me. I'm going to do this for you. That's not how we honor a king. We honor a king by saying, God, I believe in you. I've laid my life on the altar. As Stephen Trammell says, I laid my yes on the altar. It's like John Bassanio. I did a video shoot for him the other day. Last minute, he was very thankful. He said, Brent, anytime you need something, you just give me a call. The answer is yes. And that's so nice. And that's exactly what I thought. You know, that's what we need to be with God. When God calls, we just need to say, yes, I'm ready. Now, what is it? And if you're Mary, it changes your world. If you're Moses, it changes your world. If you're Job, ouch. It changes your world. But if everything didn't wrap up nice and tidy for Job at the end, would he still have served God? He did. It's not about what we get on the end. It's about what you're doing amidst. Quick note about the Apocrypha. It's a kind of a Greek word for hidden. These are books that are two canons for the Christians. We have the Catholic canon, the Protestant canon. The Catholics, some Catholics, include these hidden books. They were written somewhere between... Uh, I think 230 BCE in that time, intertestament period when God was silent and everyone was going, okay, God, we're ready. Where's this prophecy? What's next? We're ready to go. And just years and years of silence, nothing coming. Are you faithful during the times of, that God is silent in your life for the years that he was silent? My wife and I uh, were unable to have kids uh, at the first of our marriage, uh, tested infertility issues, but our desire was, was to have kids. And during those seven years, I prayed like every saint you could imagine. I read and studied God's word. I wanted to make sure everything was right on my part. And, you know, really, it's not based on me. Begging and pleading God to come through and, and do something miraculous in my wife's and my family. One thing harder than a husband Going through infertility is watching your wife deal with that. God, just cut me a break. Give me some slack. Year after year, month after month, just waiting, just waiting on God. Came to a crossroad. Is God's word true in my life? Do I follow him because he says to follow him? Or am I doing it for what I get out of this? I had to come to the point that I said, I, I'm going to follow you, God, because I trust you as my personal Lord and Savior. I profess my faith to you, which means I have to trust you to the point that I totally depend on you. 
So I was preparing my heart for not having kids. And then we began going through some adoption process. And it it wasn't the next day that we got kids. Do you hear me? Year after year after year after that crossroads in my life. And just understanding, I got to get over this. It's not about me. It's about God. Isn't that what we say? And then one day we were blessed with twins. It was a two for one deal. They were very expensive. I was glad to get two. But even through a time and a half prior to that of infertility treatment, nothing. It was dark. And if God told me not to do that, if I felt that, I I would not. But I continued pursuing these avenues and, like I said, adoption and and other things, opportunities. And in his time, God blessed in the way that he did. But I keep asking myself, what if God didn't bless the way that he did? What if he didn't bless in another way that I was hoping for? Would I still follow him? That is the question that is begged when we study the canon of Scripture, when we see the stories, the narratives of what's going on in the hearts and lives of people. Uh, well, I got off on a tangent. So this Apocrypha is the hidden, are the hidden books. And the reason that we don't ascribe to these as Protestants, one, Jesus and the disciples, they never referred back to them. Uh, they are some good history, but there's also some blaring differences and, and falsities, untruths in them that we won't go into. Uh, but the Hebrew Bible had 24 books in it. And of those 24 books, how many do we have in our Old Testament? 39. You know, we have basically the exact same books. But instead of kings or kingdoms, as they might have called them, we have First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuels. Chronicles was the last book of their Bible. Uh, I think it was uh, Ezra, or here it is, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. Chronicles was how their Bible ended. But his Historically, it goes way back up with, uh, back to the Kings and, and first and second Samuel. But with, uh, this, here's the Christian Protestant canon. Here are the 39 books. And as you move around, let me go back. Uh, we move around Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Then we have Ruth, which they have, uh, over there on number 18. They have one Samuel, one Kings. We divide those into two books. Um, and then we also use this other historical stuff, uh, Ruth. Yep. Oh, uh, all right. So we're on 24. Uh, and this wisdom literature of Ecclesiastes and Esther, um, we kind of put those together in ours. This, I'm still looking at the Hebrew. I'm rearranging it for you. Major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, also Daniel, which they have is number 22. We move those together as the, 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 the big prophets. Then the latter prophets are the 12. In the 12 that they have on number 13, that's all of those minor prophets. We just separate them all out in separate books. So I've already talked about uh, the Jews and the Christians kind of fighting over the Septuagint and the translation and understanding what, um, how to understand and interpret those scriptures. Uh, that's what's great about, I mean, you can't do it on your own. You need a, a church, a family to study God's word. And that's what we're about. Fruit for home. I want to go full circle back to the canon. I have three other uh, fruit for home in your, in your lessons that you can read later. Uh, it's good stuff. But look at this. What if we were to all agree, like the time when Ezra pulled the Bible out, blew it off, read the book of the covenant, and the people said, oh my goodness, why have we been missing this? Yes, Lord, we will obey. What is that aha moment in your life? And when it occurs, will you be a canon conductor for Christ? So with this canon, if you were to come 
if let's say it was real, and you were to come and use it, you would have to figure it out on your own. Would it take you a while? Figure out what size projectile to put in, how much gunpowder. I mean, how many cannons would you blow up before you finally got it sending out? And then the, the trajectory thing, if you want to actually hit a target and not just shotgun blast everybody, it would take you a while. But what if someone came alongside you and said, hey, I'm a cannon expert. I want to show you about the cannon. I don't know everything about the cannon, but I know enough to get you started. Come with me. I'm going to take my time, my energy, my resources to buy ammunition, to buy gunpowder, to buy the ignition switch, whatever it takes. I'm going to help you know how to use a cannon. As Christians, we should be cannon conductors, one in, how to use God's word. By golly, you've got to get in there and find out how to do it yourself, right? You can't just sit and soak it all in. You've got to go to the lab and practice and make an effort. That's what we need to be about. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, properly handling the apparatus. And then, when that's done, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Be a canon conductor for Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful today for your love and for your goodness to us. Father, we thank you for the way that you've shown us that you preserved your word so that today, 2,000 years later and more, we can read and understand more about you. Father, we rely on your Holy Spirit to continue to teach us, not to add to the canon, but to affect our personal life so that we can grow in all things to you. And as Paul says in Ephesians 4, make it so that we would grow up into all aspects of you to reach the maturity, the fullness of the stature of Christ. While we're on this sinful fallen world, that we would be light and salt and make a difference in your life because we hold high your standard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.